Thank you, Jason Meredith, missionary to the island of Okinawa, grandson of one of our charter members, John Meredith. John and Jean is here tonight, and so uh, we uh, enjoy having them. So welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. We just heard from uh, Brother Jason about his ministry there, and so we're going to uh, turn to the book of Hosea in the uh, Old Testament. We, uh, again, it's been a, a few weeks since we've been here, and we're kind of because of Sunday nights throughout the summertime, uh, we do skip around a lot about, uh, with a lot of other things that go on on Sunday nights. But we're back to Hosea as we're trying to work our way through this book, and uh, we'll be looking at chapter 6 and 7 tonight. Let me remind you that Hosea uh, in the Old Testament is the first of the minor prophets, the first one listed anyway, of the minor prophets. Uh, his name is the same as Jesus, uh, same as Joshua, uh, so in the Old Testament it would be the same name. He prophesied to Israel, that is the northern ten tribes called Israel, but these tribes are going into captivity in 721 B.C. He's in the 700s B.C., so he is basically preaching to Israel about their sins and why God is going to take them into captivity soon. We're seeing that especially here in chapter 6 and 7. In the first three chapters, remember, uh, he's the one that was commanded by God to marry Gomer, his wife's name, whom God told him would be unfaithful to him. And yet this picture between his unfaithful wife is like Israel being unfaithful to God. And so we saw the parallels between those two things in chapters 1 through 3. Now, chapters 4 through 10, we're taking in large chunks because it, it's kind of the same subject matter all the way through. All of the reasons why God is going to judge Israel, the things that they have done and not repented of, uh, especially tonight in these messages, we'll see uh, their lack of repentance. But we'll work our way up to chapters 11 through 14, which also has some of the judgments in it, but uh, a large section about how God will bless Israel in the future uh, when they turn back to God at the second coming of Christ. So we'll uh, slow down a little bit when we get to, the, uh, to chapters 11 through 14. As you start in chapter 6... Uh, I, I'm going to give you six points, and you see in your outline uh, six things that uh, we're going to go over, but the first three verses are kind of striking because the first three verses tell us about God's blessing on Israel. Now, some notice that this is connected to the last verse of chapter 5, verse 15, which if you have a study Bible, for example, I do, and my topic says the eventual restoration of Israel, well, that goes from that verse all the way through the first three verses of chapter 6. I think the reason for these, other than Israel often puts these in in the middle of things to say, don't worry, God's going to bless Israel. <laughs> Even though they sin and they, they're taking into captivity, don't give up on Israel. God's going to bless them in the end. And so in these verses, we learn that uh, in the end, God will bless this nation. They will truly repent and they will come back to God and they will be God's people in the millennial reign of Christ. 
So I love verse 3, let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. And he will and he'll return that way. Now, verse 4 begins, though, with the expression, O Ephraim. That's the major city in Israel. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? Uh, God is bringing his judgment on both. He'll bring his judgment on Ephraim, that is Israel in the north, uh, in the 700s, and he'll bring his judgment upon Judah in the 600s, uh, 100 years later. So we look at, uh, at what's happening here in their final restoration, and I tell you, as I think about, I look around the world today, I would add to that list, oh, America, what is God going to do with you? Oh, England, what has God done with you? Oh, Reformation countries, what has God done with you? Uh, the, the one thing that we must remember is that Israel is the only national people of God. So throughout Earth's history, uh, there have been lots of nations, lots of good nations and lots of bad nations. But only Israel is God's national nation. That is, the very nation itself is founded by God, the very people themselves. Israel means people of God. So we call them the children of Israel is the children of Jacob, the children of Abraham, and uh, they will be children of God. And even in the millennial reign of Christ and then throughout eternity, you will still know them by the name Israel. They will be blessed and be God's people. That is not true of the other nations of the earth, including America, but it is true of Israel. So many times when we read these promises about Israel, we're reading specific promises about what God will do to a specific nation. We might ask ourselves, but if God punishes his own people, in the way that he punished Israel and punished Judah, what would he do to the other nations of the earth? What would he do to the other people who, who can follow God too, but often do not? Now, what I want you to notice uh, in the outline that you have in front of you uh, is that I have six points because there are six what we would call similes, six comparisons of Israel uh, to various different things. So you, you see that they are like a morning cloud. They are like a transgressed covenant. They are like an overheated oven and a half-baked cake, a cake not turned, a silly dove and a faulty bow. As you look at each of these, you will see the word like in front of each one. Israel is like a morning cloud. Israel is like a transgressed covenant. Uh, that means here's the comparison. You kind of put it together. As these different objects are described, then you can say, well, that's what Israel was like. I think the other nations of the earth, including our nation, ought to take heed. And every time they see themselves like these things, they ought to say, well, maybe God's judgment would fall on us too if we don't straighten ourselves out. So follow with me, if you will, and it'll cover... Uh, uh, chapter 6 and chapter 7, these six things I just want to mention to you as we see them. First of all, Israel in their lack of repentance, in their rebellion against God, is like a morning cloud. So 
Verse 4, for your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew, it goes away. How many of us have seen the wet grass of the dew in the morning and the nice uh, moisture that God brings to the earth until that sun comes up? And as soon as the sun comes up, all of that moisture is gone, all of that dew. We like it that way, but it doesn't last very long. So what is God saying to Israel? Well, you say good things, but it doesn't last very long. You tell me you're going to serve me, but your service doesn't last very long. It's very short-lived, their devotion is. As a matter of fact, hold your place there and go to chapter 13. And let me read three verses in chapter 13. When if Ephraim spoke, trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offered, uh, or excuse me, offended in Baal, he died. Now they sin more and more and have made themselves molten images, idols of their silver according to their skill. All of it is the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. It's a way of worship. Therefore, notice verse 3, Therefore they shall be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff, or chaff that is blown away from a threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Here's some other similes that, that are like the morning dew. Just smoke that comes out of a chimney. You see it momentarily. You see it right above the chimney, and then you don't see it at all, do you? It just dissipates and goes away. Is that what our devotion to God is like? We all have to ask ourselves, are we kind of Sunday morning Christians, Sunday night Christians? Uh, and by Monday morning, our religious devotion and our devotion to God is already gone by Monday morning. That's the way Israel was. Now notice God sent them prophets, verse 5, Therefore I have hewn them by my prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And their judgments are like light that goes forth. So God says, I've brought my word to them. I spoke to them in various different ways, by the prophets and by my words and by my judgments. But notice verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. That's a common theme uh, in the Old Testament. I take you back to the time when Samuel had to come before Saul, King Saul, and rebuke him for what he did. Samuel said, 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. That's a very famous quotation, of course, in the Old Testament. And Hosea is kind of alluding to the same kind of thing. So verse 23 of that same thing says, Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you Samuel says to Saul, from being king. I thought it was interesting that Jesus referred to this also when he was uh, preaching to the, to the uh, Pharisees. Matthew 9, 13 says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's the quote. And then Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And what does he mean by that? I didn't come to call the self-righteous 
to repentance. A person that's self-righteous never sees his need for repentance. And somebody who thinks there's nothing wrong with me is not going to repent before God. But I come to call sinners to repentance because the sinner is the person that says, that's who I am. That's what I did. I'm the sinner. I need to repent before God. And so these, these expressions that follow through the word of God, uh, Hosea is referring to here because this is exactly what Israel did. Uh, they were religious, but they didn't follow through to it. They went through the motions saying, here, we're the people of God, but inward, uh, they saw no need of their own repentance. So that's where a lot of people are today. A lot of countries are there too. So they are like a morning cloud. Secondly, they're like a transgressed covenant from verse 7 through 11, but like men, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. Well, what, what is that covenant? Some people feel that it goes all the way back to Adam in the garden only because the word uh, man or men here is the word Adam. But I, I think not. I think this is the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant God made with Israel, the Mosaic covenant when he says, if you'll do these things, I'll do these things for you. They were God's covenant people. Remember even Paul said, that to them belong the covenants. And so here they are, God's people. God has covenant with them, and what have they done? They've transgressed it and not cared at all that they are God's people. Boy, if a nation is blessed by God, if a nation, uh, God has been great to them, and they turn their back on God, how terrible is that? Even Israel uh, was under God's judgment because of it. He mentions that the place called Gilead. That was a, a priestly city, a city that was supposed to be a godly city, a godly town. And he says here, Gilead is a city of evildoers and is defiled with blood. Even their leadership and the, the leaders there. Notice the different people mentioned in verse 10, uh, 9 and 10. As bands of robbers lie in wait for a man, so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem, on the way to worshiping. Surely they commit lewdness. <laughs> so what good has their, their priestly uh, heritage done to them? And notice on, not only the lewdness, verse 10, I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the harlotry excuse me, of Ephraim, that's Israel. Uh, Israel is defiled. Also Judah a harvest is uh, appointed for you when I return the captivities of my people. And so a harvest is coming. You know what that harvest is? It's captivity. It's captivity for Israel. It's captivity for Judah. If God will do that to them, he'll do that to any nation. What, what nation has escaped God's judgment? What nation still exists? What nation... Uh, has gone off in their own way, sinning and, and allowing themselves to be corrupted that God hasn't let just destroy themselves. That happens, and it could happen to us too. So the first two similes, the first two likenesses here uh, to Israel sinning is they're like a morning cloud. It comes and goes. They're like a covenant that they ought to be true to, but they transgress it over and over again. And then in, in the first three verses of chapter 7, there's kind of an interlude here. I want, I want you to notice that right when it begins, he said, I would have healed Israel. 
I would have, I would have blessed them. I would have accepted their repentance. Some people see in the very last phrase of verse 11 of chapter 6, when I return the captivities of my people is the same language and could be when I would have returned the captivities of my people. When I would have healed Israel, they would have none of it. So the wickedness of, uh, or then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered, the wickedness of Samaria, uh, for they have committed fraud. The, eth, the thief comes in, a band of robbers takes spoil outside. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember their wickedness. Isn't that an amazing statement? They don't realize that I know what's going on. They don't remember that I know what's in their hearts. And God knows what's going on in every nation and in every heart. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. They are before my face. They make a king glad with their wickedness and princes with their lies. Terrible thing when a nation gets to that. But let's go on to the other similes here. In verses 4 through 7, they are like an overheated oven. They are all adulterers like an overheated oven, uh, oven uh, an oven overheated, excuse me, by a baker. Now, here's the picture, and I'll read it, but the picture is, uh, here's a, a, an open hearth oven, of course, in those days. And the baker is baking his bread in front of this oven, and he leaves some of it there to be, for the bread to rise, for the leaven to work, and the problem is he goes to sleep and leaves the oven all night, and by morning, the oven is raging with fire. The fire, rather than being controlled, just gets worse and worse all night. So notice uh, he says here, uh, again in, in verse 4, they're like an oven heated by a baker. He ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough until it is leavened. And by the way, some commentators see here a reference to the fact that leaven is usually like sin in the Bible, isn't it? And the leaven is left in this, in, in this lump of bread, and the baker goes to sleep. Uh, you ladies probably know what happens if you let bread rise and you don't pay attention to what's going on. You know, it kind of gets out of control. So he says, then in the day of our king, princes have made him sick inflamed with wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers. They prepared their heart like an oven, and while they lie in wait, their baker sleeps all night, and in the morning it burns like a flaming fire. So you kind of see the picture here of, of what's happening. So the baker goes to sleep. The, le the leaven leavens the lump. The fire gets worse and worse, but what he's actually saying along with this is also that uh, it is the, the uh, wine and the adultery that is flaming the fire in Israel. It's not just that fire. It's like they continue on in their sin until they're out of control. And that's what's happening here uh, with uh this uh, oven, so to speak. So notice verse 7, they are all hot like an oven. They have devoured their judges. Their kings have fallen. There is none among them who calls upon me. So that's the problem with an overheated oven. Verse 7 mentions the leaders in Israel. 
And when he, he mentions the kings and the, the kings of Israel, do you remember ever seeing a list of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah? You know, you, there, there are charts of certain things, or you're reading your Bible, and you might have charts in it. And every time you see a list of the kings of Israel, there's not a good king in the whole list. You know, every time a king comes into power in Israel or in Judah, uh, somewhere it will say, and he did that which is right in the sight of God, or it will say, he did that which is evil in the sight of God. And in the list of the kings of Israel, you never find a good king. Every one of them did evil in the sight of God. So the fact is they had five kings in 13 years with four assassinations within those years. Somebody pointed out that from Jeroboam I, which is the first king uh, you know, after Solomon in the nation of Israel, all the way to Hoshea, which is the last king, there were nine different dynasties among these kings, and none of them were good. And so here's a nation without good leaders, and, and they took their own nation into God's judgment and into captivity. I think I said earlier in our study of Hosea that, you know, one way God can judge a nation is to let them have wicked leaders and let them have godless leaders. He doesn't need to bring his own extra judgment on it, when you, have, when you have leaders like this, they cannot lead the nation in righteousness. They take it into its own debauchery and its own sin until from inside out they've destroyed themselves. And then if someone takes over, then if uh, they go to pieces, it's their own fault. Nations have done that throughout the years, and nations can do that now. So an overheated oven, oven just, let it, just let it get hot until there's no way to control what's going on and the lust and the debauchery, the adultery, and all that happens there. Number four, a half-baked cake. This is one of my favorite ones. Have you ever, have you ever uh, been accused of being half-baked? <laughs> uh, one time, someone who didn't like something I taught one time called me a cake unturned, which is the expression in verse 8. So, now, maybe you've been called a cake unturned. I wasn't exactly sure what in the world he even meant by it when he said it, but anyway. Here's number four. Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim, that's Israel in the north, is a cake unturned. Well, what, is, what exactly does that mean? Well, in those days, things had to be baked on open hearth ovens. And nomadic people did it by a fire. You know, here's the fire out in the desert or the wilderness. And, and uh, they heated up the stones, and the bread was basically baked on those stones. Well, in a fire like that or a heating arrangement like that, uh, you've got the, the loaf of bread there, but you better turn it. Because if you just let it sit there, what's going to happen is, you're going to have a crispy critter on one side and raw dough on the other side. And so a cake left unturned, a cake unturned, is, is one that's overdone on one side and not done enough on the other side. Well, what does that mean in this sense? I think it means that Israel, on the one hand, was overcooked in their religiosity. 
That is, they made a big show of their religion. They made a big show that they were people of God and they were religious people. But you turn that over and look at them and they are raw as dough. They had no substance to them at all. They were a cake that never got turned over. And the hypocrisy you can see, the overbaked side and the side that still raw. So notice as we read on, aliens have devoured his strength. He does not know it. You know what, verse, verse 9, by the way, is going to say, I hate to say it, that there are a lot of old people who don't know they got old. <laughs> Aliens have devoured his strength, and he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him, yet he does not know it. Now, I never heard of such a thing as somebody getting old and, and uh, not realizing they're getting old. Oh, boy, the jokes are out there. You know, we could have, uh, we could have seen a lot of, of, uh, of this. But you know what I mean, don't you? Uh, it's kind of sad, isn't it, to see uh, an older man or an older woman, for that matter, trying to act like they're still 20 years old. You know, it's, it's pretty sad to see that, but you see it all the time. Why? Because you don't realize that you did get old. And so if you get old, act your age. And when you're, when you're young, act your age. It, it's not too great to see older people mimicking younger people. And frankly, folks, that's not how God designed the world. Now, death comes to us because of sin, I realize. But the Bible says as you get older, you get wiser. As you get older, you, you get more godly. And yeah, you can't do the silly things that you used to do when you were young and praise the Lord for it, so act your age. What the Bible does admonish is for the younger people to mimic the older people. Isn't that right? I mean, a wise child, a wise young person looks at their fathers and looks at their grandfathers and says, I'm going to be wise like grandma or grandpa is. That's the way God designed it. That's the way it should be. And yet, when you come to a time where all the people that ought to be wise are acting foolish like children, then you're really in trouble. And Israel was in trouble because that basically is, uh, is what happened to them. They're, they were uh, acting like this and didn't know it. They are a cake unturned. I wonder if sometimes the church doesn't mimic the world instead of the world mimicking the church. Do you think that happens? It happens all the time, of course. It's the church, it's God's people in the world or God's people in any country that ought to be the godly ones, that ought to be the, the, the trusting ones, that ought to show a holy or a clean life. They're the ones that the world ought to be able to look at and mimic that church, the people of God. And yet too often, it's the church mimicking the world and the church being like the world, uh, and we're falling into the same judgment that uh, Israel fell into here. So a cake, uh, a cake unturned. <laughs> Don't let yourself be a cake unturned. Be sure you turn yourself over, all right? Number five is a silly dove. This goes from verse 11 through verse 15, and then the last verse, verse 16, is reserved for the last simile. So a silly dove, well, verse 11 says, Ephraim also is like a silly dove 
without sense. They call to Egypt, they call to Assyria. Wherever they go, I will spread my net over them. I will bring them down like birds of the air and chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. Well, what is the picture here? A silly dove that just flies here and flies there. You know, birds are kind of like that, aren't they? Especially, uh, you know, birds that you might try to feed or, or you walk up and they fly away. Uh, so what was Israel doing? Every time they needed help, did they turn to God? Did they go back to the one who was leading them? No. You know what they did? They went down to Egypt. They go down south and say, we'll hire you if you'll come and defend us. You know, our, our enemies want to overtake us. So they go down to Egypt, of all places, to the world to look for protection. Israel doesn't help, so what do they do? They turn around, they go north, and they go up to Assyria, and they try to hire Assyria and say, will you protect us and will you help us? Usually from Egypt, you know. And uh, rather than turning to God, and, and think about it, here is Israel that came across the Red Sea, and who helped them there? No one but God. They came through the wilderness for 40 years, and who helped them there? No one but God. They came into the promised land with all of the nations to conquer, and who helped them there? God did, by his great power, by his miraculous means, and so now here they are finally, and every time they get in trouble, who's helping them? Egypt? Assyria? Or the Syrians? Or later the Babylonians? Turning away from God's help when they ought to be looking for God to help. As a matter of fact, it's a sad thing that even some of the great kings... Here are two verses about Solomon. I think the saddest verses in the Old Testament are 1 Kings chapter 11. Uh, that tell about Solomon in his older life. Solomon, the son of David, had, had spread the, the kingdom of Israel when it was still one kingdom uh, all over the known world at that time. It was the, the greatest kingdom that, that uh, Israel had ever seen in the Old Testament. But 1 Kings 11.1 1 says, But Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, and the Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your hearts after their gods. And then it says, Solomon clung to these in love. How, how sad is that? Here's an older man that, that was one time said to be the wisest man that ever lived, that God gave wisdom to. And in his old life, he becomes like this. And he goes after not only uh, the other nations, but the women that uh, he loved and got carried away with. So it's a sad thing. And notice then that, that God says uh, to them, wherever they go, I will spread my net over the, on them. It's the picture of how do you catch a bird, you know, and evidently people who catch birds have their net, their ways to do it with nets. I will spread my net over them. I will bring them down like birds of the air. I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. There's a cross-reference to in the prophet Ezekiel where Ezekiel is preaching to Judah, the southern nation, when God is going to take them into the Babylonian captivity, Ezekiel 12, 13 says, I will spread my net over him, that is Judah, and he shall be caught in my snare. 
I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, though he die there. Don't even know what they did. Don't realize that God's judgment came upon them. Uh, they were like this silly dove flying here and there, and God had to bring them into captivity. Well, you know, when you go after everything in the world except righteousness, when you want to be like that, you want to be like this, when a nation, I, I, I think, you know, uh, and I know I've mentioned our country and I love America, but uh, why do we want to be like the rest of the world? We're the light set on a hill. We're the one who's supposed to know God. We're the one who's been blessed of God. Why do we want to be like nations that don't know anything about God? Why do we want to throw away our own heritage and our own legacy? We shouldn't as a nation. Israel did. They were the people of God. They were the people God would have helped. God would have blessed if they had turned to him. But no, they turned to these other nations, and God captures them like a silly bird and takes them into captivity. How silly can that be? Well, it can be pretty silly, and we see it happening in a world all around us. One last thing, and that's in the last verse of chapter 7, that Israel was like a faulty bow. They return, but not to the Most High. They are like a deceitful bow. Well, what is a deceitful bow? What are they talking about there? They're talking about a bow that doesn't shoot straight. You want to hunt with this bow, and there's the animal that you want to kill, and you draw the bow, and you think it's going to go straight, and it doesn't go straight. Uh, today, we would think of a, a rifle that's not sighted in, you know, and you think you have something in your sights, but when you fire, that bullet goes way off its target, and you wonder, how, you know, why can't I hit what I'm aiming at? And that was the way they were with their bows. They, they just couldn't hit what they were aiming at. In Psalm 78, listen to these verses. And this may be even what Hosea is referring to because the Psalms were written, most of them, before Hosea wrote. Psalm 78, 55. He also drove out the nations before them, allotted them an inheritance by survey, made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. This is God's blessing to Israel. Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. So here's the psalmist using the same expression. For they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their carved images. When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel. Boy, when you uh, cannot turn back to God and you cannot worship him in the proper way, uh, it moves God to anger and it moves God to judgment. And that's what had happened to them. Not only that, but in, in, uh, you see the reference to their cursings of their tongue also in this verse. The cursings of their tongue, this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. I mean, with their mouth, they couldn't do anything but curse God couldn't do anything but talk evil about God's way and about the things of God. When that happens, you're in trouble. So here are, here are six similes in the Old Testament uh, that uh, you might see yourself in. Uh, you might see our nation in such a situation or the nations of the world. And I think it, the, the saddest words that we've read here tonight is God saying, I would have forgiven them. I would have helped them. 
I would have heard them if they'd come to me in true repentance and wanted my help. But it was all a fake. It was all a sham to them. They did it with their lips, but their heart was far from him. That's a sad thing, I think, uh, to think about that. And if God will judge his chosen nation, if God will judge his chosen people, what more will he do to the nations of the world that are going to come and go throughout history if they don't follow the Lord God themselves also? Okay, I want you to stand with me as we stand and think about these things. We've jumped through two chapters here very quickly, uh, but a lot of interesting uh, analogies that are given to us here. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on us as we end our service and sing a song in just a moment. Father, thank you for uh, these words of your prophets. Uh, we, we see in them real-life situations. They had to live through. You took them through. And, Father, we see ourselves in these. We see our own nation in these things sometimes. And, Father, we just uh, put ourselves before you as your people, as your church, asking, Father, your forgiveness, asking that you would have mercy on us and on our churches and on your church and on our nations. So, Father, I pray you would bless our hearts as we think about these things. Put, put our mind and our heart and our lips in the right place so that people can look at the church of Jesus Christ and mimic that rather than the church mimicking the world. May we be those kinds of people before you. Thank you for these things, and bless as we sing tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken's going to come and lead us in this song.